This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. Hello and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli and ladies and gentlemen, we are heading to new record in Bitcoin here. Maybe that's only me who's interested in that right now, but bringing up the CoinGecko, coingecko.com. If you want to follow your cryptos, that is where everybody goes. And I don't know what the record is, but we are at 62,395. Let me check the Twitter, Digital Gold. That is our connection here. Let me check the Twitter. This may have just happened. You know, I was watching one of the real experts, and he was associated with Nuggets News out of Australia, which is one of the main sort of crypto news organizations. Very impressive stuff. And one of their experts was saying Tuesday nights is when Bitcoin tends to do something. Let me just look at Twitter here. New all-time high for Bitcoin. So here we go. It has been consolidating for a couple of months, and so people think this thing is coiled up and ready to go. So we are at $62,456. Now let's look at gold for, wow, and Ethereum, $2,205. My God. Gold, $1,728. So keeping above $1,700, very good. Silver, $25. Copper, $404. Platinum eleven seventy four and palladium twenty six ninety four. We will go into all the metal prices. Don't want to do too many spoilers here. And let's just look at the markets here. I'm actually really enjoying. I hope you guys are liking just a quick overview of the numbers. You know, amidst all this financial commentary, sometimes it's nice in you know just to get the straight up numbers US 10 year 1.693 so where we were last week basically 1.7 uh the German 10 year at minus 0.28 basically where it was last week UK 10 year positive 0.8 okay and finally let's look at oil $60.08 for West Texas intermediate and the markets Dow Jones at 33,745, S&P 500 at 4,127. So, yeah, is crypto about to take the spotlight again? The Coinbase IPO is about a week away. Yeah, and there it is on CNBC. Bitcoin hits new all-time high above $62,000 ahead of Coinbase debut. So that is the backdrop, folks. This uh, This digital assets thing is getting pretty huge. And NFTs, non-fungible tokens, where a lot of the digital art is happening. I've been doing really well on that, by the way. Some of you guys know I'm an artist as well, basically half-time artist, half-time at the Northern Miner. And uh, yeah, it's been booming. It is booming. I'm on super rare. I don't expect you guys to pay the prices that everybody is paying, um, but it's pretty crazy what's going on here. So NFTs, of all things, are bringing uh, crypto mainstream. So 
You know, it's hard to see this as just a six-month fad, but let's see where this goes. And what is going to bring this to an end? So lots to think about here as we become increasingly more digital in our lives. On a more real-world front, this week we're going to have uh, Louise Pierce, who's with ERM, Environmental Resources Management. And we've had a couple of their people on in different ways in the last couple of months. And I think we've even had a couple of their articles uh, from Louise Pierce. So yeah, so they are experts in the ESG space. And so we have an interview that Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell did with Louise Pierce at the last Global Mining Symposium. And speaking of mining symposiums, we have a new one coming up. This is a quarterly event. And let me get you details on that. Registration is now open. Just go to events.northernminer.com. And on May 19th and 20th is when the event takes place. You can register or become a sponsor. So that is very exciting stuff. Again, that is May 19th and 20th, but you can just go to events.northernminer.com. We have a couple of elections happening in Latin America. The news is going to be a bit kind of government-focused in a really interesting way. Barrick and PNG have reached a deal. Rio Tinto and Mongolia looks like they've reached some kind of deal. So lots to get to. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and wherever podcasts are available, including Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, we have an election outcome in Ecuador, and the pro-foreign investment candidate, a conservative former banker, Guillermo Lasso, has won the election with 52.5% of the vote, a decent margin, and he beat out Andres Arroz, a 36-year-old leftist handpicked by former President Rafael Correa. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, Mining.com. And while neither candidate had declared himself anti-mining, Lasso has vowed since the beginning of his election campaign to promote foreign investment in the mining and oil sectors while cutting tariffs on agriculture and other heavy equipment. However, Lasso also warned he would emphasize the enforcement of environmental protection rules and larger involvement from indigenous communities in deciding the future of projects. So I think it's right here that we are seeing the real impact of this ESG thing, because this is not usually what you hear from the conservative candidate, and now you are. So you see the spectrum is shifting a little bit. Continuing on, the president-elect has made public his position to ban open pit mining near water sources, grasslands, moorlands, and underground water flows. He plans to appoint a minister of environment and water in charge of ecological conservation while supporting the use of non-renewable natural resources. It sounds very pragmatic and reasonable. Mining in Ecuador employs more than 3,000 people, and it was one of the very few industries that grew in 2020. According to data from the Central Bank of Ecuador, the industry is expected to expand by 5.7% this year, accounting for 1.84% of the nation's GDP. Yeah, and remember, they had a, I'm pretty sure they had a year at PDAC, which was like Ecuador uh, was the country of the year. I think Peru has also been the main sponsor country another year. Uh, 
So they made a real push a few years ago, like two, three, four years ago. And you see how much further it could go. I mean, if Ecuador only has 3,000 people working in the mining industry, that number could probably at least 10x. So a big opportunity there for the country. And we got a comment from Salazar Resources, and this is from Mar Johnson, an executive with the company. Quote, Lasso said he would make referends on mining projects mandatory and binding. He said he preferred ecotourism to mining and that he liked the EVs and low carbon energy. These may have just been tactics to win votes, but it does not help the mining sector. So not a very warm review from Salazar Resources. Lasso has sought to establish a dialogue with environmental groups and indigenous Ecuadorians who make up 7% of the population by offering, quote, respect for their culture, their customs. Right, and residents of the city of Cuenca, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in southern Ecuador voted in February in favor of banning future large-scale mining activities in five nearby watershed zones, an area that stretches over 3,100 square kilometers and is home to more than half a million people. Yeah, so it just talks about how there are other projects in the country, including Lunding Gold's Fruta del Norte, a massive gold project, a Chinese-owned Mirador mine, and... Saul Gold's Cascabel Copper Gold Project, which we keep coming back to, and that is backed by BHP and Newcrest. So that is Ecuador. I would think good news for the mining industry, although uh, the Salazar Resources executive does give one pause because maybe this person knows a little more about the situation than we do. Moving on, uh, Peru is also having a presidential election. This is by Valentina Ruiz Leotode. And here's the article. As Peru goes through yet another presidential election with 18 candidates running, six likely making it to June's second round and no defined favorite, the Ministry of Energy and Mines has made public its most recent data set, which shows that copper production rose by 0.7% in February. According to the report, Peru produced 170,989 tons of copper in the second month of the year, which is more than what was produced during the same period last year but which represents a 3.1% fall compared to January. Okay, so it's gone down since January of this year, but compared to last year, it's still up. The improved year-on-year performance was led by Antamina, which is owned by BHP, Glencore, Tech Resources, and Mitsubishi, and it was responsible for 22% of production. Aluminum Corp of China's Chinalco Peru had 12.4% of production, and Glencore's Compania Minera Antapaque with 0.4%. And finally, copper makes up 4% of Peru's GDP. By year-end, MINEM, which is the Ministry of Energy and Mines, expects annual copper production will reach 2.5 million tons, which would mark a 16% increase compared to 2020. Exports grew by 21% year-on-year in the month of January. Iron ore exports shot up by 132%, molybdenum by 76%, and lead by 58%, and silver by 49.7%. Gold dropped. Gold, on the other hand, fell both in exports and production. You know, we were discussing where will this digital asset crypto market end, and you wonder if gold is going to pick up the pieces. Should there be a big blow up in crypto. Everything's cyclical, so you don't know how or when or, but you know, who knows? Uh, so anyway, so very interesting stuff out of Peru. 
There's also an election in Greenland, which could jeopardize the Kvanjenfeld project. And this is by Trish Saywell. You see how mining is becoming a major issue. Kind of always was, but I mean, it's interesting in all of these elections, you see the impact it has on the mining industry in that country. And it just goes to show the risks really that these companies face being in a country where you don't know in the next election what's going to happen. So final election here uh, that we're going to look at, a snap election on April 6th focused on mining, fishing, and the environment saw Greenland's Inuit Atakatikit, the Community of the People Party, secure 37% of the votes, giving it 12 seats in a 31-seat National Assembly. Inuit Atakatigit opposes the development of Greenland Minerals' Kvanjenfeld Rare Earths Project, which would produce uranium oxide as a byproduct. The Australian's company major shareholders Chinese-owned Shanghai Resources. And we have a quote, we say no to uranium mining. And quote, Mute Burup Egede, Inuit's Atakatigit's leader, said in a statement to Greenland's public broadcaster, KNR. So we say no to uranium mining. And he continued, there are two issues that have been important in this election campaign. People's living conditions is one, and then there's our health and the environment. And the second party taking second spot with 29% of the votes and 10 seats was the Sumit Forward Party, which has dominated power and is not opposed to mining since 1979. Sumit's leader, Eric Jensen, has said the proposed Kvanjenfeld mine would be, quote, hugely important for Greenland's economy. Inuit Atakatigit could form a coalition with another party that opposes the project, like Nalarak, an independence party, Reuters reported. So more questions, and there's quite a bit more in this article, so I encourage you to go visit northernminer.com. To get the details on that, particularly if you're in the rare earths, uranium, or interested in Greenland mining, and look at this, Barrick and PNG reach a deal over Porgera Mine. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, mining.com, and so this is about a year in the making. Let's take a closer look. Canada's Barrick Gold and Papua New Guinea have ended a year-long standoff with an agreement that gives the country's government a majority stake in the Porgera Gold Mine and outlines plans to restart operations. So this is interesting. And Mark Bristow has been on the forefront of basically saying, we need to make this all super fair. And so you almost got the sense that if Mark Bristow, the CEO of Barrick, couldn't have made this deal, then nobody would have been able to make this deal. I don't want to exaggerate, but he definitely had a, he has the experience and he has the desire to do something great for that country. So it would have been very interesting to see if he couldn't work something out. Let's take a look at the deal. The agreement sets up a new joint venture in which PNG stakeholders have a 51% stake and Barrick New Guinea Limited, BNL, holds 49%. The partnership owns the gold mine, but BNL remains as the operator. Barrick and Zijin will have their stakes from 47.5% each previously, with the remaining 5% allotted to PNG's mineral resources, Enga. So if I understand this right, like... Am I to understand that Barrick and Zijin owned 95% of this mine previously, and now they're both having their share and giving it to the government? I, as far as I understand here, the deal sets a 53-47 split between PNG stakeholders and BNL, Barrick New Guinea Limited, 
in economic benefits generated over the life of mine with BNL providing the capital to restart. So they're doing everything they can. Prime Minister James Marape, who came under a lot of fire before for doing this, said the deal was, quote, a historical development, end quote, that will set a benchmark for further resource projects in the country, as well as existing operations. So I guess everybody else who's working in the country is on notice. Major mining projects in PNG's pipeline include Newcrest Mining's Wafi Golpu project. They must be thinking, Mark Bristow, what have you done? Which has been the target of government demands in the past. The development is one of the world's top 10 gold projects in terms of size and potential. As part of the deal, Barrick has agreed to an exit op- option as PNG is retaining the right to acquire the 49% of the mine from BNL at fair market value after 10 years. And we have a quote from Prime Minister Marape. I think Barrick CEO Mark Bristow and his team for recognizing our nation's aspirations and their willingness to partner with us in realizing this vision at Porgera. So I guess that's going to be restarting soon. So very, very interesting development. You can't help but think that other countries are looking at that and saying, you know what, let's do the exact same thing. Should be interesting. Turning to another government story, Rio Tinto Turquoise Hill strike funding deal for Oyu Tolgoy. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, Mining.com. Rio Tinto and its majority-owned Turquoise Hill Resources have reached a deal that ends a standoff between the companies over funding for an expansion of the massive Oyu Tolgoy copper gold mine in Mongolia. And the government, I believe, has a big hand in Turquoise Hill. The funding plan addresses the remaining U.S. $2.3 billion needed for the underground project, building on and replacing deals set up under a Memorandum of Understanding inked in September last year. The companies have agreed to restructure debt payments of up to $1.4 billion with lenders and look to raise up to $500 million in supplemental debt under existing financial arrangements. Right, and so Rio Tinto had spent way too much money and this caused consternation among the partners. The underground expansion has seen costs jump up to $6.75 billion US, about $1.4 billion higher than Rio's original estimate. And that has led to friction over funding between it and Turquoise Hill. And we have a quote from Steve Thibault, Interim Chief Executive Officer of Turquoise Hill. Right, and the main CEO left. That was on the front page of the Northern Miner just a few weeks ago. Quote, with a binding funding agreement now in place that sets out a process along a known timeline, we will be able to move ahead as expeditiously as possible with the development of the underground project at Oyutolgoy. So a diplomatic statement. Okay, so it continues. Looks like that's going to be back on track. You know, all these governments must just be desperate to get these projects going, but they don't want to get ripped off in the process or what they perceived as being ripped off. So... You know, there's always a tension between uh, government and industry, particularly when it comes to mining. So we're really seeing that in all five of these news stories. So very interesting times. And again, with this digital assets in the backdrop, it's a very, very interesting landscape. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. metal prices we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week and on april 13th 
Gold is trading at $1,727.79. That is $7 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.94 per ounce. That is $0.04 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,169.07 per ounce. That is $38 lower than last week. And palladium has broken $2,700 to $2,703.60 per ounce. That is $26 higher than last week's quote. That looks like an all-time high to me. Don't quote me on that. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.08 per pound. That is $0.10 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is up $0.02 cents at $1.02 per pound. Lead is up a penny at $0.89 cents per pound. And nickel is up $0.28 cents at $7.54 per pound. Tin also higher at $12.73 per pound. That is $0.32 cents higher than last week. And cobalt is lower at $22.61 per pound. That is $0.12 cents lower than last week. And finally, zinc is at $1.27 per pound. That is $0.02 cents higher than last week. What do we see? Again, a consolidation with gold and precious metals. Not going down, not really going higher. Palladium completely stealing the show at $2,703. Industrial metals look like they have the wind in their sail. They look like they may be getting ready to go higher. They are all up for the most part, except for cobalt. So I'd say a bit of a status quo, nothing really changing other than palladium getting quite high up there. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Louise Pierce, Managing Partner in Mining at ERM, which stands for Environmental Resources Management. And she's in conversation with Northern Miner Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell at the Global Mining Symposium. And Louise Pierce was recognized as one of the top 100 global inspirational women in mining by the nonprofit organization Women in Mining and has spent her career in becoming an expert in ESG. So she is definitely a thought leader in that area. So with that, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and it's just a sample of what we do at the Global Mining Symposium, and we'll see you on the other side. You know, Louise, it's been fantastic talking to you over these last few months. Louise Pierce, for the rest of you, works at ERM, which is a global sustainability consulting firm where she leads the team on mining and metals and materials. And she spent the last 25 years advising mining companies of various shapes and sizes around the world on how to integrate ESG and sustainability into their mine plans and into their business strategy. So I can think of no one better than you, Louise, to talk about ESG. And I'd like to start with an anecdote uh, off the record, but uh, you know, you were, I think it really sums up the changes that we've seen in ESG over the last decade. I mean, you, you told me that you were at a mining conference or a conference of some kind, you're on a panel and, and the topic of ESG came up and one of the panelists on the, the dais said all they really cared about was whether the company was in the newspapers or not and whether they had a sustainability report and whether they were joking or not, that just wouldn't fly today. You know, it's just changed so dramatically, especially in the last couple of years, where investors, 
ESG funds, banks, you name them, they need to see what companies are doing on ESG, their metrics, whether they're linking executive compensation to you know, uh, ESG metrics. So maybe my first question to you is sort of, can you talk about all the things you've seen over the course of your career and how things have really accelerated on this front in the last couple of years? For sure, Trish. And I, I think, first of all, it's really important to be aligned on what ESG means these days. So ESG is actually a business approach that generates long-term value by controlling risk and capitalizing on opportunities associated with environmental and socioeconomic issues. Such value can either be created or just protected. And it can be measured in, in terms of financial, operational, intellectual, reputational, human and or natural capital. And, you know, it's definitely, you know, I mean, ERM has been around longer than longer than I have been working, but, but for 50 years this year. And, and we've seen, you know, in the early days, we saw environmental being key issues. It was getting into government policy. We saw, you know, and then in the 80s, you saw the rise of environmental protection laws um, uh, protecting air and water in Canada and particularly around water. And it's evolved from there, and it's now very much mainstream. So maybe about five years ago, um, at a session, a PDAC session at the PDAC conference, uh, we, we highlighted um, what we saw as some of the, the major disruptions, you know, coming to the mining sector. And, and, and at the time, the application of new technologies and alternative sources of materials were two of the more obvious ones at the time. And, and we, ter- we termed it the Uberization of mining, and that caught some press around Canada. Now, for lots of reasons in 2021, that's probably not the best title to use uh, in terms of a sustainability context, but it certainly conveyed the sentiment of, of disruptive forces that impact our industry and the industry to respond to those. And, and these pressures, I think we're seeing our investor pressure uh, increasingly as it relates to ESG performance and, and, and as the investors themselves become more sophisticated in their modeling and understanding the impacts and trying to predict predict what those impacts are. Um, there's definitely much more interest in, in supply chains around responsible sourcing. So where do the materials come from? Where do I get them? How far do they transport them? You know, what's, what's the uh, carbon associated with them, et cetera. We're seeing a, a much more heightened awareness of the consumer or the end users of, of manufactured products. So in the heightened awareness around the sustainability issues of those, they may not understand them, but they're demanding things like use of more recycled metal in iPhones and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and community activism, and I think I mean, that's been around forever, but, but now it's about the power of social media to organize and communicate in real time, like as it happens, and, and that changes you know, how we need to respond and how quick we need to respond. And then there's probably a big pressure around talent and, and you know, us, us hanging on to some of we've got some very talented people who spoke at the conference over the last two days, but how do we continue to track the talent we need in the future when we might not be the sexiest industry out there? You know, so, so what's this involved to, you know, again, we, we see that the, the investors being really quite sophisticated along with consumers and users and, and all stakeholders um, and so it's not just um, important now to talk about a significant discovery or great production numbers. It's equally important to talk about how you're working with your local communities. As um, Scott from CORE said before I spoke, you know, it's, it's critical now. And, and you need to be able to articulate how you contribute, your country, company contributes to the low carbon economy transition, uh, the responsible sourcing of, of metals and other materials, and to the local communities you're in. 
For sure. And you've always said that, you know, companies with a focus on ESG can attract higher valuations, right? I mean, yeah. as of March a year ago, I think a trillion dollars were under management by ESG funds, which is phenomenal, right? So yeah, yeah. You recently surveyed 54 private equity investment professionals about how ESG factors into their decision making. I just want to read some of the stats that you guys came up with. 50% of them said ESG credentials are a factor in winning deals for them. And another 70% said ESG will sell side due diligence will be undertaken increasingly over the next three to five years. So it's, it's such a shift, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and that survey you reference is, uh, was done in March last year. So, yeah. um, and it, it's with our partner, uh, Principles for Responsible Investment. Uh, so it's, it's, the, it's the investment companies that, uh, that look after that. And it, it, it is about a trillion dollars worth of assets under management. So, um, and, and so we spoke to them about how ESG really impacts their decision making. And, and I guess, you know, you, you mentioned some of the stats, but what, what I think the, the results underscore is, is that you know ESG is not just considered in terms of the risk of ESG or a risk management exercise. It's actually also starting to appear in a valuation or a multiplier. I think that that's probably the biggest shift we've seen. We we actually we we did the survey also first for the first time in 2016. So so over the course of of, of that year, we uh, those four years, we've seen a threefold increase overall in the importance of ESG. And, and the vast majority of, of those 54, um, you know, leaders in, in these funds, um, they said uh, that the, they expect the pipeline of ESG investment opportunities to increase or significantly increase over the next little while. Mm-hmm. And, and we've seen we've seen some of this play out already. So there, there was an article in, in the Financial Times earlier this month um, that stated that the pace has increased of the ESG investment funds over the course of just the pandemic. And, and they said they said that 253 European funds changed their strategy or investment profile in response to the rising demand for sustainable investment over the past year. And although I think we, we see that Europe tends to lead the way in this, uh, you know, particularly in terms of the volume of the ESG funds, North America is never far behind. Why is Europe ahead? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's the same as, 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 as on some things. It's probably more heightened awareness. It's probably, you know, the regulatory system has, has grown up around environmental and, and social issues, whereas we, we tend to be, you know, in, in North America, a bit more scientific to our approaches. So we tend to be more prescriptive. It's a little bit different. So if you've, if you've got more prescriptive regulations, you don't have to have the, you know, is more complex evaluation. So I think it's the rise of tide, but I, I think it's there in North America. It's just maybe, maybe we, we speak more technically. I don't know. I mean, what do you think is really at the core of what's driving ESG? I mean, I read Larry Fink of BlackRock's uh, mm-hmm. annual letter to clients, and in the last one, he, he spent most of it talking about climate change and 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 the importance mm-hmm. of being carbon neutral. You know, is that really what's just pushed ESG to the forefront? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's too. I, I think we see two issues. Certainly, the transition to a low carbon economy is is the most obvious of the issues. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a heightened awareness of the climate change. That that awareness and the need to do something about that was well in play uh, before um, we, you know, the pandemic hit, and it's going to continue to to be really critical for the future. I think the second um, the second big factor that we're seeing, and we saw over the course of last year, is is the rise of the S in ESG, so the social issues. So, so if I talk about the, the, the transition to, to the lower carbon economy first, so this initiative looks at societal contribution to, to combating climate change overall. And, and it, it's really about 
you know, the fact that everyone, all governments, all people, all industry have a role to play in it if we're going to reduce the cap emissions at a two degree scenario or one and a half degree scenario by 2050. And so although I think that delivering on promises to reduce carbon and get carbon out of our operations and our processing and, and, and downstream manufacturing, it also creates massive opportunity um, for mining. So, you know, I think we saw increased demand creation uh, for the materials that has been referenced a couple of times yesterday. We saw Glencore's recent publication on some staggering projections for the copper and nickel and, and battery metals it's going to take to um, facilitate this, this, carbon, this low car- lower carbon economy transition. Um, so huge upside for the mining sectors. And I think it's, you know, the, the need, I think what the investors are seeing, it's not just about mining's role, but it's about how everyone needs to work together and the interplay and how you've got to really think about working downstream. So how can you, you know, produce an ore, process an ore such that the carbon impact for the manufacturer or case of a, of a steel manufacturing is actually lower. And I think, you know, we've also seen in a number of cases around the world that these kind of carbon-related decisions play out in terms of which companies get, get financing at all. And then if they do, it, you know, we, we are seeing differences in the rate. I also mentioned the, the S in ESG, and I think, you know, I think ESG across the whole mining and metals ecosystem, right down to the end user, is, is rising. But, but over the course of 2020, I think we saw issues involving human rights come to the fore. And, and we saw incidents you know, involving some of the world's biggest um, and, and what we thought were quite sustainable mining companies. So, for example, in May uh, last year, uh, 46,000 year old indigenous rock shelters were destroyed in Western Australia. And, and with them, uh, it took out a lot of social ca- uh, capital and several C suite jobs, including the CEO of a major miner. So, if you think about, you know, in a world heightened awareness around the need for reconciliation and inclusion of indigenous peoples and just the broader need, as we saw, with, with some of the issues in, in Minnesota around anti-Black racism, I mean, the need to end systemic racism. You know, we're seeing this, that, that the SNESG is going to impact everything from access to capital through to the company's uh, future brand perception. Yeah, I mean, I guess I mean, you, you spoke to it earlier. I mean, it, ESG presents both a threat and an opportunity for the mining sector, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the I think there's a lot of um, particular uh, Hidden costs or hidden opportunities we see in the mining in the mining community. I, I, I think there's, but the, the opportunity. I mean, the risks and managing the risk. We've probably been pretty good at that for a while, but we're seeing what we're seeing now is those opportunities. They they, they play out in in a variety of ways. So so whether it's just the opportunity to produce the materials and, and necessary for a lower carbon economy, or the ability to do something different. So you know, if you can if you can produce a a metal that is, is more responsible, perhaps that metal gets valued differently over time. Um, you know, certain, certainly the carbon, the, the carbon footprint of, of, of a metal will go right the way to the end user and that, that eventually if, if the tides continue, it's going to, it's going to end up in, in terms of the end user. So there's, there's an absolute ton of opportunity uh, to get this right. And so, and, and it's, you really need to, to look at risk management um, from that point of view of, how can I do things differently to create opportunity and leverage this? Sure. I mean, and, and that brings me right, to, right back to tailings dam failure. It's one of the still one of the biggest challenges facing the mining sector. And ERM did a, you reviewed major dam failures over the last 12 years in a recent report. And I want to read this. Your conclusion was 
that basic organizational and human factors such as budgeting, operational leadership, safety and risk culture, and competence played a significant role in each of them. Why can't we get it right? What uh, it, it, I ask myself the same question. So I think I think the ESG of, of tailings management and, and the need to stop tailings dam failure is is it's an indeed indeed a huge challenge for our industry. You know, I uh, like like many I, I've watched uh, my fair share of Netflix over the lockdowns. I, one of the shows I watched was Crown, and, and I don't know if you saw it, but the right. Crown's the depiction of the Aberfan disaster yes. in 1966 in Wales. Yeah, yeah, it's just. But it, sh- it showed us the horror of, you know, what it was to, to lose 144 lives, 116 of them children, you know, as a result of poorly managed mining waste. And, and then if you think about it, you know, uh, just, a, just you know, almost two years ago now, we saw up 270 people lose their lives at Brumadinho in Brazil in the same thing. And we've seen failures, you know, year after year. And, and it's kind of strange. It's, it's a real strange paradox that, that while our, our, our industry has made such massive strides, and, and I think in often leaders in integrating ESG into business decisions, um, it's only recently started to come to the real grips with the risks uh, posed by the waste disposal sites. So I think the, the technical and engineering causes of tailings dam failures, they've been well-researched. You know, you things like slope instability, you know, overtopping them, foundation stability, yeah, perhaps I think I've been cited as, as three of the most significant causes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it's the organizational and the human or adaptive causes that, that are less well-researched. And yet, you know, we've found these to be absolutely just as significant and just as contributing. And I'm not totally sure why it happens, but if you think about, you know, the nature posed by an aging or some tailings facility like an Aberfan that was closed, you, you're... You're saying, you know, is it maybe you don't want to know what could happen, or maybe you you just you just get used to it because it's there. You've lived below it, you're below it your whole life, and it kind of gets you know. You're, it, there's a mindset change need from from everybody, you know, because and because what that results in is you know inspections get delayed. People drive by this thing all the time. And you don't see what could be there, mm-hmm. and I think you know there's a new. Uh, global tailing standard out now um, in ICMM. Um, we're working with ICMM actually to prepare the guidance for that new standard. Um, and I think it's a great step. Um, and, and we, you know, when, when, when companies implement it, I think uh, we're going to encourage a rebalancing of the focus from the, onto the so-called non-technical aspects. So those human and social factors. And, you know, and, you know, tell companies that, you know, think about what fails, visualize what fails. We've got a lot of technology to visualize what happens and what you take out downstream if it fails. You know, I think that that'll start to to change change the outcomes a bit. I think. And didn't ERM do a study? You looked at six hundred tailing dams over the size of Scotland. Yeah, yeah, we looked at we looked at the yeah we looked at if 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 you'd have failures of tailings dams and and you know using rudimentary modeling, but what that would you know what that would cover. So whether you know if if, if you know losing what would happen what happened at Brumadinho and other tailings dam failures. So. Uh, you know, it's it's an area size of Scotland that would be covered, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of people living downstream. There's a lot of infrastructure in the mines themselves that are downstream that are you know in the way that that you know maybe we could do something about that over time, and certainly when we develop new mines to do something about it. Another subject on ESG that comes up, and not necessarily people think about it that much, is is mine closure costs. And you wrote an excellent article for us in our in our issue this that's coming out uh, this week on the hidden costs of mine closure. And one of your lines in the article was, you know, if, my, if, if mining companies knew how much it would cost to close a mine, they might not start in the first place. But um, what, I, what I loved about that article was that this statistic, 
you looked at 57 mines that closed around the world between 1945 and 2012, and only five of them have been relinquished for new use. So that means every other one of those is in some form of care and maintenance, which is not only a black eye for the mining industry, but it's a huge cost for mining companies. You know, what can be done on the mine closure front to improve our ESG on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And, and we actually see a, a real opportunity. I guess when you have stats that life, there's always opportunity for better. But you, you see, we see a real opportunity for, for the mining industry to rethink uh, the traditional approach to mine, mine closure, which is, you know, it's about you build a mine, um, you do operate it, and then you close it. And so there's basically go through a, a, a deconstruction, de-engineering process. But, but we see that, that maybe things don't need to look that way. Um, as a sector, I think it's important to think about when we mine a resource, that's a temporary use of the land it's on. Mm-hmm. It's not the only use it could be at the time, and it's not the only use it could ever have. Mm-hmm. And, and I think also you know, equally, you know, mining companies throughout the world, they've demonstrated a clear ability when they enter a community that they can generate secondary and, and tertiary economies um, that can, that can, you know, really, really be refreshingly live um, uh, um, after that mine. I think when you, when you look at that, that, that aspect, if you think about it a bit differently, you can kind of shift from being the miner to, to a land manager. Um, and, and so that transition, it's going to necessitate the, more than just developing a closure plan, you know, with the engineering and operations teams, and then you pass that on to the finance folks, and they discount it, put it in net present value terms, but it only includes cost items, and it includes an assumption that, you know, after 10 years or so, you're going to be able to relinquish this, this, this thing, which we said is not, is not the case normally. So it is a massive cost. But, but in, in our article, um, we point out a few mines um, at, that have never been relinquished as, as you planned. Um, and we also point out that things like costs for social transition and perpetual water management of some of these mines don't actually make their way into current provisioning or bonds. So that true cost becomes quite expensive. And that, that's, that's the reason for my comment at the end of the article. But I think you know, achieving better end of uh, mine life transition, you know, we need to move the conversation from mine closure to acknowledgement that you know, there is multiple land uses for, for this asset. And we need to uh, engage with stakeholders who are ultimately going to judge the success of any post-closure solution and have a role in the establishment of, an, of, a, of a shared solution. So, so by looking for opportunities to create shared value with the regions, mining companies can build trust and balance responsibility rather than simply provide financial assurance, commitments, or bonding with the short-term goal in sight. Listen, Louise and Trish, we know how critical ESG is. So to have a, that kind of high-level conversation for our audience, we all, everyone owes you a big amount of gratitude. Thank you for such a great, mm-hmm. fulsome discussion. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Trish. It's been great. Cheers both of you. What a great way to end off. Talk about knowledge transfer. that moment in Plato's Symposium when Socrates says to Alcibiades, Oh, Alcibiades, if only I could touch you and everything I knew were to be transferred over to you, how wonderful that might be. Memory serves, of course. So with that, thank you once again for joining us on the program. It's always a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to do this. We have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. And until next week, take care.
This episode of the Northern Miner Podcast is brought to you by Revival Gold and their Bear Track Arnett Gold Project in Idaho. If you want to learn more about Revival Gold, you can find them at revival-gold.com and you can find them on the TSX Venture Exchange at RVG and on the over-the-counter markets at RVLGF. <laughs> 